Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. From Alberta, where, of course, we broadcast on QR77, CHQR in Calgary, and 630 Ched in Edmonton. And it was on those two radio stations on Friday that Premier Jason Kenney, who is being introduced by, or interviewed rather by Shea Ganim, described Danielle Smith's proposed Sovereignty Act for Alberta as cockamamie. Here's what the Premier said. I spoke out uh, in January and December about uh, this uh, cockamamie so-called Sovereignty Act. It's, it's really the Anarchy Act, or as one conservative constitutional scholar puts it, the Alberta Suicide Act. It, it would put the lieutenant governor in a very awkward position for the legislature to pass a law saying that it will not enforce the laws. That is without precedent. So let's talk to uh, Daniel Smith, the perceived frontrunner to replace the uh, Premier as Premier of the province of Alberta. Danielle, thanks for joining us. When you hear Mr. Kenny, I know you've heard this before, but when you hear it now, what's your reaction? Well, my reaction is that he's going to be done in about five weeks' time, and he really shouldn't be weighing in on our leadership race at all. It's highly inappropriate. I don't know that I've ever seen, actually, a caretaker uh, sitting premier who's about to be replaced weighing in on um, on on a leadership election. So I, I think he's erred in doing so, and I don't I don't think that it helps his preferred candidate. Quite frankly, especially from the feedback that I've been receiving, we're going to be putting forward how the how the sovereignty act would work. Um, what what it would look like in the legislature. We're planning on doing that anyway. We'll be releasing that tomorrow. But he's he's certainly prejudging. And the only reason he's doing that is to interfere in the race. And I find that extremely disappointing. Can you give us a little bit of a look ahead as to what you're going to release tomorrow? Yeah, I want to. I want people to understand how it would actually work. I mean, he's 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 quite incorrect. The the lieutenant governor in our province has only ever intervened to stop a bill when it was the provincial government wanting to interfere in federal jurisdiction. So back in the Eberhardt days, there was a whole series of banking regulations that Eberhardt wanted to, to bring through. And those were kiboshed by the, the, the lieutenant governor at the time. I have, I have absolutely no interest in invading federal jurisdiction. I understand quite clearly that national defense is federal jurisdiction. That cross-border infrastructure like pipelines is federal jurisdiction. I can't force anybody to approve Energy East much as I would like to. We can't print our own currency. We can't set up passport offices. So that, that is not what this is about at all. But but you can see how declarative I'm talking about federal jurisdiction. That's how much I respect the Constitution and the federal areas of power, but they don't respect ours. You see what, what happens at the federal level is they pass legislation that interferes in our jurisdiction all the time. And then they make us go to court to try to get that legislation turned down. We're right in process on that, on Bill C-69, a bill we've had to live with now for several years, and we'll probably have to live with it for several years more as it wins its way through to the Supreme Court. Every province is intervening on that. It's quite clear that the federal government overstepped because they want to manage every single project in our province that they declare that they wish to. And, and this is really just a defensive measure. It's acknowledging that this federal government has been been, been behaving in a lawless way ever since Justin Trudeau got elected, but particularly since he appointed Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo. And we're not going to let them do that anymore. If they keep on passing this kind of legislation, we're just going to say, no, we're not going to enforce that. And then they can take us to court to see whether the, the courts will uphold our jurisdiction or if they'll allow them to do that invasion. I suspect that the court will uphold our jurisdiction. Interesting that you uh, bring up Bill C-69 because I think it was two years ago, three years ago. Six conservative premiers or conservative-minded premiers, including Mr. Kenny, uh, wrote a letter to Justin Trudeau, and they were arguing that C-69 and C-48 would put national unity at risk. So it's not the same thing, but it's an interesting point to consider. Let me ask you this as well. I thought about this on the way into the radio station today, and I understand the fundamentals of a constitutional uh, democracy or a monarchy, constitutional monarchy, however we phrase this thing. When the premier talks about the unelected appointed lieutenant governor, and this isn't directed at a lieutenant governor, this is about what the premier said. If he says 
that declares his public support for an unelected lieutenant governor having the right to decide whether legislation duly considered, debated, and passed by an elected provincial legislature is or isn't constitutional. I, I get concerned because this isn't exclusive to the Sovereignty Act. When the premier talks about the lieutenant governor having the right to make the decision whether it's constitutional, it makes my antenna go up. And again, I understand the significance of a constitutional monarchy, but I'm a little concerned when I hear that. As well, you should be, and I, I hope, I hope that he didn't goad her into making a comment because, as you see, they they were actually at Alberta Day celebrations uh, together, and then n- not too long afterwards, she weighed in on this bill for the first time. She's never she's never weighed in on uh, on anything to do with this race before, before, but that would be highly inappropriate if they had any conversation about it. And I think it does, unfortunately, uh, create some confusion about what the role of the lieutenant governor is. These issues that we're talking about really should be debated out in court because there is a legitimate uh, discussion to have. The the, the problem is the federal government has been the one invading our jurisdiction. We're just telling them to stop. And we're doing it in a way that would be setting up essentially a legislative firewall to let them know, don't do it again. That's all we hope to have happen is that put them on notice that they should not be intervening in our jurisdiction and we're, we are going to be the ones that are going to defend our legislation. And that isn't a scrap that the Lieutenant Governor should be in at all. Okay. Lieutenant Governor has in our system developed into more of a ceremonial type of role. And I, it's also highly inappropriate to weigh in on any legislation that hasn't even been introduced by a party leader who hasn't even been elected yet. The, 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 she, I've really called on her to walk back her comments because it, it isn't the role for the lieutenant governor to be weighing in on at this point in any case. Um, can you think of Ottawa decisions or legislative moves that you would have opposed and perhaps engaged a sovereignty act, which is yet to be defined, as you've said, but can you think of an Ottawa decision or move where you might have engaged the Sovereignty Act to countermand a federal government initiative or, or decision? I can think of a couple. The Emergencies Act. We could have done what Quebec did and said, nope, we're not going to enforce that. When they started freezing bank accounts, we could have said um, to our credit unions, which is our, our under jurisdiction, nope, we're not enforcing that. Um, we have, I think, some d- uh, pressure, in, and we'll see how it unfolds in the fall, if they start uh, mandating vaccination, we will also say we will not enforce that. Alberta wants to take a different approach uh, on how we deal with respiratory virus season. If they start mandating it on children, once again, that's health is a provincial jurisdiction. We will not enforce that. Um, Stephen Gilbo wants to has talked about having a mandatory reduction in emissions of 30% on fertilizer, which means a 30% reduction in fertilizer use. We would join with Scott Moe in saying no. We won't enforce that. We'll make enough fertilizer available to our farmers so they can produce food. And he also wants, he's on in the middle of a consultation that ends on September 30th to put a specific cap and trade system on our oil and ga- natural gas, forcing them to reduce emissions 50% by 2030. Every industry leader I have said, I've talked to has said that cannot be done. Yeah, we've without shutting in our industry. That's True. another one we would not enforce. Yeah. It's uh, it's not quite 50, I think it's 40-something, but close enough. 42%. Yeah, 42%. Is this personal? Do you think uh, Mr. Kenny's making this personal with you? I know you've said that he has his preferred candidate, but has this now become a personal situation? It, it shouldn't be. I mean, I've known the Premier for a very long time, and I, I have been very complimentary of what he's done on the economy to attract business to Alberta, to reduce the corporate tax rate. He's done some streamlining of regulations, and so I've been very supportive of that. But the, the, the reason he's no longer Premier is because he blundered on not getting tough enough with Ottawa. It uh, was creating a lot of division in our party. It was creating a, the, an environment where new parties were forming, and we were losing our rural base. He's also no longer Premier because he blundered in coming through with a vaccination passport when he said he wouldn't, and, and demonizing vaccinated people and creating division in our society also uh, felt most acutely in the rural areas. So there's 
two key reasons why he's no longer why he's no longer premier and why it is we're having this contest. But I, I think he's done some good things, and and I've said so publicly. So I I really think that he uh, shouldn't be trying to interfere in in the race. It's been obvious for, from the beginning that he has a preferred candidate, and to intervene at this stage, the only thing I can interpret is is that he's trying to to tip the scale in favor of that candidate, and that is not appropriate for a caretaker premier. So we have the situation developing in uh, in Alberta, where in a few weeks' time, on October the 6th, there'll be a new premier for the province. And uh, nationally, next Saturday, so a week today, we will know who the new Conservative Party of Canada leader is and uh, seems to be, if uh, if we follow the, the trend, that it'll be Pierre Polyev, although none of the others have conceded, and Mr. Charest feels that he still has a good chance of winning this uh, conservative leadership. Let's talk about what's going on in the world of politics in this country and uh, how much interest there is as we uh, get into September. It's interesting we're in the Labor Day weekend when people generally get back to a more, I don't want to say normal way of life, but more predictable way of life. Daryl Bricker is the president and CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. He is the author of Next, as I've told you many times. It's a book that belongs in every home in this country, so you know what's actually coming our way. Daryl, thank you very much uh, for joining us on this uh, conservative leadership issue. Do you see Pierre Polyev, and what's the national view of Mr. Polyev? Well, when you ask people who are conservative voters, uh, people who say they would vote in the uh, for the conservative party in the next federal election, uh, who they want as their leader, it's very clearly Pierre Polyev. Uh, but when you uh, go out and you ask the general population who they prefer of the candidates, uh, Mr. Charest has a, has a bit of a lead. So there's a, a discontinuity between what conservative partisans seem to want and what the, uh, the Canadian public finds appealing. Uh, so that is going to be the challenge for Mr. Polyev. I don't think that there's been any indication uh, that there's really going to be any other uh, outcome next Saturday. It would be a shock if there was another outcome. Uh, but um, uh, he's done uh, whatever he needs to do to sell his agenda to uh, people who are voting for the Conservative Party, but there isn't enough of them in order to win an election. So he's going to need to branch out to uh, a bigger part of the electorate, and that's where he's going to run into his challenges. Yeah, the, it's interesting that they um, were able to sign so many members. I mean, it's fascinating, actually, that they were able to get over 600,000 members and uh, I don't know how many of them will actually vote or have voted. But uh, what does that lead to as far as you're concerned? And I'll piggyback that with this question. Um, if Polyev wins, and I agree with you, it looks like he's going to, does he then have a bit of a grace period, do you think? Do you think Canadians will be watching very closely um, his initiatives whatever he does that relates to this, the federal government and Mr. Trudeau, are, are we going to, is he going to hit a grace period? Let's see how he does. Let's see how he behaves toward Trudeau and the government before we make a decision about him. I would say, Roy, that it's less a grace period and more of a heightened awareness period. Uh, one of the things that's really interesting when you take a look at the data about what's happened, what's transpired during the course of the leadership campaign, is Canadians haven't paid very close attention to it. More than half of the the, the, the people uh, that we, we've interviewed over the last while don't even really have an opinion of Pierre Polyev. So, you know, you get a lot of, uh, you know, uh, uh, media attention, you know, from columnists and other people, talk show hosts and others who are talking about Pierre Polyev, but most Canadians really aren't paying attention uh, at this point. So what's going to happen is when he moves into that uh, position, um, he will get a hyper level of attention as all new political leaders uh, of major political parties, particularly ones that have, could potentially become the next prime minister. He'll get a heightened level of media attention. And how he performs in that first six months in the job is going to be critical because usually what happens is people form their opinions of somebody and then it's very hard to get them off of that. So okay. he's going to have maybe half a year to, to set impressions in the right direction or he's going to struggle for his entire leadership. I don't know if your polling tells you this, but if I look at emails that I've received over the last couple of months, Daryl, if I were to take 100 of them that have to do with this particular race, the conservative leadership race, they tell me, the listeners tell me, very, very determined, in a very determined way, that what they don't want is an extension of Mr. Shear and Mr. O'Toole. They want a leader who will be challenging Mr. Trudeau, 
and uh, hold him to account. They just don't want the status quo. Is that what you're hearing, too? Yeah, I think uh, what conservatives want is more than anything is somebody who can win. Uh, and, you know, with both Andrew Scheer and Aaron, o- Aaron O'Toole, who, by the way, for your listeners, came very, very close to defeating Justin Trudeau. Yes, he did. Ju- Justin Trudeau lost the popular vote in each of the last two elections. And in, particularly for Aaron O'Toole, who closed the gap with, with Justin Trudeau in the last federal election, if he would have just picked up another three or four or five points in the 905, he would have won the most seats. So the conservatives don't do need to do much in order to in order to compete effectively with the, with the liberals and potentially win the most seats in the next election campaign. Uh, so Polyev, uh, somebody who uh, ha- is seen as having a more, I would say, um, uh, 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 a harder edge uh, to his point of view on the future of the country and, and, and what government should or shouldn't be doing maybe somebody who's going to be able to cut through in the last four or five points. I think that's what conservatives are hoping. But we also know uh, that uh, people, particularly who live in the 905, aren't necessarily that fond of a a really hard edge in Canadian politics. So this will be a really interesting test. We saw Stephen Harper. And by the way, uh, you know, not that I want to be nostalgic, uh, Roy, or or say that things look like they, they used to. But this period of time reminds me so much of what the uh, the old Conservative Party went through, um, you know, uh, around the time that Stephen Harper became leader and then ran, went into their first election campaign. If you're very familiar, people are saying, particularly in the media, are saying very similar things about Pierre Polyev that they were saying about Stephen Harper. And, you know, uh, and, uh, by 2006, people have gotten over it. They've got so uh, they they were so done with the Liberal Party that were, they were prepared to take a risk on Stephen Harper. Yeah, I, I would say that uh, you know Pierre Polyev is is more along that line than along the Joe Clark line or you know the more moderate type of uh, 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 old Laurentian elite type of uh, of perspective on uh, on what Canadian uh, political leadership should be. So it's going to be an interesting test. But we've been down this road before. And I would say it looks very similar to how the Conservatives looked prior to the 2004 national election. Do you know it's interesting you say that because uh, I was just thinking the other day about the very same thing. And on the morning of the election of 2006, I was working 9 a.m. to noon at CHML in Hamilton. And we had uh, Mr. Martin and uh, Mr. Harper back to back on the show to start off. And we, they, neither one of them wanted to go first. You know how it is. Or I don't want to be the first guy because then I want to. I can't respond to what the first guy said. So it turned out it was Paul Martin and then Stephen Harper. Luck of the draw. But as we were getting closer and closer to the date for the election, Daryl, it became very evident, just by the numbers of calls, and just by the determination of the callers, there just how assured they were of what they were going to do that it was going to be Stephen Harper's, and that was it. And yeah. and that's the way it turned out. And you, you, I, I have the same idea. That's, this is almost like Harper arriving, and let's see what happens over the next two years. Yeah, well, the thing that, uh, one of the things that I've learned over the last 35 years of doing this, Roy, is that uh, structural uh, factors matter a lot. They matter a lot in election campaigns. So what we're going to see in the next federal election campaign is a, is a federal liberal party that's going to be on its fourth election. Yeah. With very little changing of the changing of the guard. Yeah. Canadians are tired of this current administration. Now that doesn't mean that they couldn't go through their own leadership change, which by the way, I, 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 I think is very likely prior to the next election campaign that they'll go through their own leadership change. But as with Paul Martin, even though you change the leader, the, the 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 branding that that impression that people had of the liberals didn't really appreciably change with Paul Martin. No, it didn't. And so we're in a we're in a, a period that looks more like a change election. So the advantage, in spite of what people may think, when they hear a lot of the commentary about Pierre Polyev, the advantage is actually his, because he is a candidate of change. And and by the way, when Canadians vote for change these days, they don't vote for you know uh, what political consultants and, you know, people who are well plugged into politics like to call safe change. No, they they hit the, the big red change button <laughs> or the big blue change button yeah. when they want to go for change. It's how Doug Ford got elected. It's yeah. how his brother Rob Ford got elected. Yeah, that's true. People really want to change. Yeah. Now, when it comes to what may happen with the, uh, with the Liberal Party and uh, with Mr. Trudeau as the leader, 
it's uh, I hear you saying that you're of the view that he may very well follow his father's lead and take a walk in the snow. And then what happens? Does it become Christian Freeland's party? Well, she seems to be the one that uh, has is, is getting the most attention. But, you know, leadership campaigns are always about organization and uh, and money. So uh, the question is whether or not she's building either of those things. But, uh, you know, it is interesting to watch uh, um, uh, Justin Trudeau and Christopher Freeland. He's treating her in a similar fashion. And although Brian Mulroney didn't go this far with Kim Campbell, in kind of a similar fashion to the way that Kim Campbell uh, was treated. He, uh, he kind of saw her as his successor. And you can certainly get the same sort of vibe. Uh, from uh, from Justin Trudeau relative to Christopher Freeland. So um, unless somebody's got, uh, um, uh, you know, a really super secret, fantastic organization and they've done a great job of organizing all sorts of liberals, uh, you know, the, like Paul Martin did against Jean Chrétien back through the 1990s, it looks to me like Christopher Freeland's in, 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 a, in a pretty strong position. The other thing, though, is, uh, you know, when Christopher Freeland moves from being the Minister of Finance over to being the person who's making all of the decisions, decisions. Will she rise to that? Or will she be like Paul Martin, who really, really struggled when he moved from the position of Minister of Finance, where he seemed to do no wrong, where he moved into uh, the uh, the Prime Minister's office and, and became, uh, you know, affectionately known at the time as Mr. Dithers. Yes. Um, so the, w- it will be interesting to see how she performs if she makes that transition. So there's a lot of water to go under the bridge on this, but my I'm assuming at the moment that what we'll see uh, Mr. Trudeau do is what his father did and also what Brian Mulroney did, which is, you know, read the writing on the wall and, and basically said, you know, my time is my time is gone and I'm going to move on to do something else. What happens to Jagmeet Singh in uh, in this regard? Now, he's signed that uh, agreement with Mr. Trudeau and the Liberals, the deal with the Liberals, we'll support you as long as you take care of uh, your end of the bargain, and we'll make sure there's no election until 2025. Is there a price that uh, potentially is going to be paid by Mr. Singh? And if Mr. Polyev becomes the leader of the Conservative Party next week, does that issue become even more significant for Jagmeet Singh? Well, you know, every NDP leader now uh, through the 1990s and into the the aughts really has... uh, a decision to make about what kind of leader do they want to be. Do they want to be like Ed Broadbent was, which was the conscious of parliament and perfectly happy uh, being in the position that uh, Jagmeet Singh finds himself in right now? Or do they have a more aggressive agenda uh, and see themselves as becoming the progressive champion in the country and taking over from the Liberal Party, which is what Jack Layton saw? Um, unfortunately for the NDP in this period of time, it seems Mr. Singh wants to be Mr. Broadbent. Uh, and provided that Mr. Singh wants to be Mr. Broadbent, uh, that gives the Liberals a pretty wide uh, a patch that they can cover in order to uh, uh, to become the uh, progressive champion. But it also causes a significant problem for Mr. Polyev. So even if Mr. Polyev, uh, you know, wins the most seats in the next election campaign, if he's the leader of the Conservative Party, if he doesn't win a majority, the likelihood that the NDP and the Liberals will get together to prevent it is pr- probably pretty strong, especially with a leader like Jagmeet Singh, who seems to have no problem with that idea. Uh, One more question, and let's switch to the Alberta situation. We uh, spoke with Daniel Smith earlier today, who was responding to Mr. Kenny being on our chorus radio stations in Alberta, CHQR and and Chad, saying uh, that the Sovereignty Act, the proposed Sovereignty Act, Ms. Smith's Act, is cockamamie, and they called it the Anarchy Act, and she directly, obviously, challenged uh, Mr. Kenny, how do you uh, see that developing? Because October 6th, there's going to be a new premier in the province of Alberta. Well, you know, there's an awful lot of commentary these days about, you know, Alberta simply doing what Quebec did. Um, and the truth is, when you take a look at public opinion in the province of Quebec and you take a look at prob- public opinion in the province of Alberta, um, in, in Quebec, particularly during the, the, the heyday of the sovereignty movement, there was a large portion of the Quebec population that was actually behind this kind of anti uh 
uh, federal government, anti-state type of uh, uh, central state uh, type of perspective, where they 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 had an agenda and they wanted to become a separate nation within within Canada. However, they were defining it at the time, sovereignty association. The problem in the Alberta situation is is that things like the Sovereignty Act, for what whatever you know manifestation we're going to see coming forward on that. Yeah, there's a certain amount of anger that drives that, but some of the biggest patriots that we have, national patriots in the country, are actually in the province of Alberta. So uh, I think that the the ability to push on that lever, uh, while people who are the more extreme in their perspectives, the ones who are really invested, uh, you know, in the uh, Alberta political situation, particularly on the right, think that they've got everybody behind them and everybody supports them. They're going to have to be careful because I, I think that that's a fairly small circle in terms of the percentage of Albertans that would actually strongly be behind that idea. Tourism Industry Association of Canada doesn't like Arrive Canada all. They want to see it gone, as does the National Airlines Council of Canada. Just looking at some news stories here that are just a couple of weeks old. And uh, Arrive Can continues to make headlines and people continue to challenge the um, that particular app and the need to fill it out before you re-enter Canada from another part of the world or even just, you know, trip across the border. There's also the punitive side of things. I'm looking at a tweet from Health Canada and the Public Health Agency of Canada. Attention travelers, violating any instructions provided when you entered Canada is an offense under the Quarantine Act and could lead up to six months in prison and or a $750,000 fine. So ArriveCan, is it a useful tool to screen those entering this country? From COVID infection or a failure because far fewer travelers than the federal government claims, they say 99% of airline passengers and 94% of land border crossers actually use ArriveCan before entering the country. That's been disputed by the Customs and Immigration Union President, Mark Weber. He testified about this before a parliamentary committee on the ArriveCan app. And Mr. Weber joins us on the Roy Green Show. Mark, thank you very much for taking the time. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. 99% of airline, 94% of land border crossers use ArriveCan before they arrive at a Canadian airport or land border entry point, says the government. What do your officers tell you? What does your information tell you? Yeah, those numbers are completely false. Uh, it's 99 and 94% after we've assisted them to complete the app. The actual number arriving with the app already completed would likely be closer to 60 or 70% which is really contributing to a lot of the uh, the excessive wait times we've seen this summer. Is this also a decreasing number when you say 60 to 70%? Is it going down? Is the compliance number going down? Really doesn't seem to have changed very much. We have travelers who didn't know it existed. We have some who just refused to fill it out. We have some who have difficulty filling out uh, the app, some who don't even have the smartphone technology to do it. There's a lot of different reasons, but uh, clearly people are having difficulty with it. Yeah, I was talking to somebody who's in that bureaucracy the other day, just asking questions, and I said, what happens if you're in an area where Wi-Fi is poor? You're on vacation in an area where the Wi-Fi just doesn't work properly, but you have to return to Canada, and you have to fill out the app and do what you have to do within 72 hours of returning to the border. So what do you do? If you can't get at it, how do you fill it out? And uh, the point that was made to me was, well, it's at the discretion of the border officer anyway, so don't worry about it. So I thought that's a bit of an unusual response from a government official. If you can't fill it out, don't worry about it. You never hear that from CRA. No, I mean, it's really not discretionary. We do have uh, what we're calling the mulligan rule. We have a one-time exemption that's been in place for a little bit now for people who've not filled it out, where we are entering that information saying we gave them the exemption this time, Next time, they're going to have to fill it out. But it's not discretionary, and it's not up to each officer to make that decision. It's it's obligatory. And when you talk about, you know, being in foreign countries and having to fill out the app, I mean, roaming fees are not inexpensive. It's difficult for a lot of people to do. Yeah. Uh, we do have smaller ports that don't have uh, data available. So, yeah, it's a challenge. So if uh, you're a person who drives to the border, let's say, and uh, you haven't filled it out because you're not really conversant with doing things online or you haven't been able to access it because of Wi-Fi challenges. So you arrive at the border, you're, you know, you're nervous, you have your papers, you have your proof of vaccination. What will the officer do? Are you telling me if it's a first-time reality, the officer will let you go? Yes, you, 
you get a one-time exemption, we'll explain to you how it's obligatory and make sure that you know that it's a one-time exemption. Uh, other than that, though, it, it absolutely does have to be completed by everyone. Have you spoken with the minister about this? Have you had an opportunity to exchange ideas and thoughts about a RIFECAN? Yeah, we we did get the opportunity to meet with them earlier in August. We had a very good meeting. Uh, We we did share, and and what I think we can provide is the experience of the people working the front line who have these travelers coming in every day. And it is very frustrating for our members when we hear, you know, numbers given of 99, 94, 95% um, when we spend most of our time at the border now acting as IT consultants, helping people fill out an app. It's nowhere close to 99%. And I think the question that's being asked is often the wrong question. We're we're asking whether or not the app is faster to collect the data that's being collected. Obviously, having someone pre-fill out the information on an app is faster than us asking each traveler each question. But I think the real question that should be asked is, do all those questions have to be filled out? If the only requirement is to show to me, the officer, that I'm vaccinated, you can do that by simply showing me your vaccination certificate on your yeah, phone. Yeah. Right? Well, that's what the Americans do. Yeah. I called them as well. And they said, so what happens when you get to the border? If you're a Canadian driving into the United States, you haven't been back for a few years because of COVID, but you have your, um, you know, you've been vaccinated, you have the proof of it. They said, uh, as long as you have, uh, have it on your phone, photo on your phone, we can identify who you are, we can read it properly, you're on your way. And, and you know, we're not... Um we're not, not public health experts. No one working at the border is a doctor. We're, we're hoping that there's some, you know, legitimate health and safety reasons why all of these additional questions are being made mandatory. But some of them, it, it is hard to, to see where the usefulness of having to complete all of that is, especially when we hear about, you know, we're not doing contact tracing anymore. Um, we're really, us working at the border kind of lost as to why we have to take up all of our time doing that, and especially so when we're already very critically understaffed at our borders. So you take that really serious understaffing, and then you add the requirements of spending hours upon hours helping people complete an online app. It's uh, it's a desperate situation for us. So if I hear you correctly, then, the fact that the apps aren't filled out at the level the government says, and more like 60 to 70%, like you've told us, does that then translate because you just said hours and hours, does that translate potentially to hours and hours of extended waits at the border simply because of our can? It has added significantly to the wait times at the border, and we did see peak summer. We're seeing land borders with three, four, five-hour wait times. We've all seen the news reports of the, uh, the lineups at the airport. It is absolutely adding to the wait times, yes. Now, an unrelated, not unrelated question, but, uh, but one I need to ask you. It's different, and we've had a lot of talk about firearms. And firearms legislation and bringing firearms into, uh, into Canada and smuggled firearms. How often do your members find smuggled firearms? And I mean with intent entering this country from the U.S. Not just American travelers who took a wrong turn and found themselves entering Canada when they really had no intention of coming to this country. How often do you find, uh, do you intercept smuggled arms, firearms? I mean, with intent, I don't have those statistics in front of me, so I don't want to give you a wrong number. And I think it would be fair to say that quite a few of the ones that we do seize are not intentional. It's people who happen to have it on them who forgot that they had it on them. Um, really, I mean, we, we should be seizing a lot more than we are. And it, again, it really speaks to the understaffing that we have at our borders right now. And I don't know if you know this, but we're seeing um, increased functionalities being added onto the ArriveCan app. One of those is an online declaration ability. Uh, we've not been consulted on what the plan of that is, but we're really afraid that this is being developed to be kind of like a um, like those automated kiosks are at the airport, right? Where mm-hmm. someone can declare ahead of time, they yeah. show up at the border, they scan their phone, and they go through unless they've declared something. I mean, if, if we're really wanting our officers to do the jobs that we're there to do and, and find those firearms... We need people at the border to interview travelers. We need them there to search people's cars. That's not going to be done through any online app. And that really, above you know, our discussion around the wait times and the extra work, 
for our members, for our union, that is really a big concern when we see this, this over-reliance on technology that, that really, like what they've put in place at the airport, does not work. We talked with the General Hillier a year ago with my next guest, Bruce Moncourt, and I just want to set this up for you. Bruce and the General were on talking about a young man you've heard a lot about on this program recently, Jess LaRochelle, the private who uh, fought with such incredible valor while he was very badly wounded in, uh, in Afghanistan in October of 2006. And while General Hillier believes that um, Private LaRochelle is deserving of the Canadian Victoria Cross, the highest military award, and while General Omer Lavoie who was the Lieutenant General, Omer Lavoie, who was the command officer during that battle, joined us as well, speaking so highly of the valor and the heroism of Private La Rochelle. Our federal government decided no, specifically the liberals. When it was raised, they shouted it down or voted it down. But they say it's over, but it isn't over until you allow it to be over. So if you think that Private La Rochelle is deserving of at least consideration, for the Victoria Cross, after what you've heard, then uh, get in touch with your member of parliament. Let them know how you feel about it. Now, Bruce Monker is back with us. And Bruce, today, it's a very special anniversary for him as well because he almost died on this day in 2006. And he was in the same platoon as Private La Rochelle. Bruce, how are you? Oh, good, Roy. Uh, yeah, I honestly... Um Last week, when I listened to you uh, uh, interview uh, Omar, I got goosebumps. It was it was just an incredible interview. You know, when he was describing what uh, Jess LaRochelle did, I was trying to picture it, and it's so intense. I kept getting these visions, and I said it before I went on the air that it's the sort of thing that you expect Hollywood to create in a movie with stuntmen and fake guns and fake blood and fake explosions, except this was real. This it's happened. Honest, honestly, like a Rambo, a scene out of a Rambo movie. <clears throat> and and, uh, and Jess LaRochelle is uh, receiving surgery right now. Well, maybe not this minute, but he's, he's in for surgery that relates to that particular day, yes? This week he did make his way down to Toronto. Um, he, he did some consultations. And uh, they are looking to see if they can uh, help uh, rectify some of his uh, health-related issues related to that day. So here you are, with great determination, standing with your fellow veterans, supporting them, calling for a recognition for what they did. And, uh, and you are a hero in this country. You continue to stand with your fellow Afghan vets, and 16 years ago today, you suffered a very grievous injury, and it was after that, when you started to recover, that we had our first conversation, and I couldn't believe what I was hearing from you. Remind us, please, what happened on that day in uh, October 2006. What happened to you? So I um, took part in the opening, uh, I guess, salvos of uh, Operation Medusa on September 3rd. Uh, about 80 of us were ambushed by uh, 400 Taliban trying to take over the infamous white uh, school. Um, a five-hour firefight ensued, and we took about 25% casualties and were forced to retreat when some of the casualties became uh, some very important uh, people, in particular two uh, platoon warrants uh, going down, Frank Mellish and uh, Rick Nolan. And the next day we were supposed to go in uh, and uh, uh, an A-10, an American A-10, mistook uh, our position for that of the enemy and strafed uh, my platoon. And thus in two days time, my platoon was reduced from 40 to five and Charles Company was deemed combat ineffective. Um, I uh, had two brain surgeries, had 5% of my brain removed um, and then uh, subsequently lost the ability to read, write, walk, and my talking was slurred. And it was only after about two years of extensive physical and occupational therapy that I was able to regain most of those faculties, uh, uh, I guess, uh, you know, since losing them. And, uh, but my, my, I had a couple of long-term uh, injuries that, uh, you know, deemed that I was no longer 
fit to deploy and thus uh, was forced to retire from the forces at 22. It's such an incredible story because you say the A-10, you say it so easily. The A-10 is also known as the Warthog, and it's a tank killer. And from what yeah. I understand, the shells on that thing are the size of somebody's forearm. Yeah, 30-millimeter Gatling cannon, uranium-based, uh, electrically charged, uh, 80 rounds a second. Uh, it is a very fierce uh, gun. In fact, it's uh, it's so powerful that it it's, it pushes the plane back, and I believe it's the only gun that actually pushes a plane backwards when it fires. Wow. So you were able to survive this, and I read an accounting. I don't know how much you want to talk about that, but I read an accounting of how you described your injuries, and you were aware of what was going on, but you weren't really able to fend for yourself clearly because, you know, this you had this massive wound in your in your head from that shell. Um, how did you get off the battlefield, Bruce? So I uh, crawled to the nearest person that I knew had the uh, combat medics uh, 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 training, um, and he did first aid to me until he actually went down from shock because he too was was shot. Um, eventually, another soldier uh, uh, in my section, the only one that didn't get injured, who. Uh, I guess fortuitously answered nature's call, uh, and it, it might have saved his life as he came back. His pillow was covered with shrapnel. Uh, he uh, he he applied first aid to me, and then I had uh, uh, you know medics and uh, a couple of special forces soldiers came down from the mountain and, and carried me onto a chinook, and that's where I went into my first surgery. And um, in that surgery, uh, in that time. Um, the, the base was attacked with rockets, and uh, I woke up with uh, lead-lined blankets, blast blankets, all over my body. And the, 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 the men and women that uh, administered the surgery to me and uh, stayed at their positions and, and continued uh, to, to do the surgery while rockets uh, fell around them. You know, we don't get that picture. We don't understand. We're not, you know, we don't really know what happens. And you're describing these things, these circumstances, these terrible realities of war. And you're young men. You're 22 years of age. I think you'd been uh, in Afghanistan for, what, three weeks when you were when you were hit? Yeah. I mean, just just over a fortnight. Like not, not really, you know, 22, very young, very naive, very, uh, you know, very green. It was uh, my first deployment, uh, last deployment. But... Um, I, you know what? I, I'd always had a love for history, and that's what kind of brought me into this valor in the presence of the enemy. I went back to school. I got a degree in history, and I really started uh, looking at a lot of the guys' stories and realizing just how few people know about them and know about what's going on and how it is a shame, crying shame, that a lot of these guys' stories aren't known. And, uh, like, nobody, you know, you and I could maybe list off a uh, you know a few Victoria Cross recipients, but how, you know how many Canadians know who Tommy Ricketts is or know who yeah. uh, Smokey Smith are, and, and 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 that's where where we need to do better. And I think that you know just because uh, you know there's some maybe perceived shortcomings by our government, it doesn't mean that we can't uh, pick up the slack. And that's when I really started to realize that Jess, you know, even not getting the Victoria Cross could be lost to history, what he did that day. And I just, I, I couldn't sit by and let that happen. And I, I knew that we had to do something about it. And that's why we created Valor, was not just to advocate, but to educate. And I think that's what the biggest importance here is, and to understand that just how important a lot of these guys and gals uh, sacrifices are uh, throughout, from you know all the way to the you know our our, our first times of the Finian raids, all the way down to you know War of eighteen twelve, all the way down to today. And I think that you know getting to know these stories a little bit better would really help us you know recognize just what it really is to be Canadian. Yes, and and in a matter of days, your group went from forty to five. That's what people have to remember. And everything that we've heard about uh, about Jess and about you, I'm going to come back, uh, Bruce, because when you and I f first spoke, 
Uh, you were still, I think you were still doing s- some rehab, were you not? I believe so. Yeah, I was. I um, I still do have, you know, uh, occasionally still have to, you know, I do like a neuropsychological exam to see my cognitive skills, if they've diminished, you know, significantly from, you know, two years prior. Um, I still have, you know, in the, 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 in the vocational rehab uh system in uh, uh, in veterans affairs but I, I I'm very happy to say that I've I've become I've managed to get a teaching degree I'm a fully qualified teacher now uh, and so you know that progression going I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones that kind of has a second act or is able to you know to 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 move forward and and find a, a second uh, calling and uh I think it's it's very important to a lot of the guys that they they understand that just because their military career is over doesn't mean that their life's over, and uh, it's it, you know it's, it's it's very significant that uh, we you know while we still honor those that have died and we still commemorate those those days that we also commemorate those that are still alive and those that are still you know that got those medals and and that's what the valor is all about. So when you um... When it comes time for the government to say thank you for your service and we want to be there for you, there was, I'll never forget this, there was one check. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, no, my uh, my pension was uh, a point of contention. It took me about a decade to get it all sorted out. And uh, again, without my family, I don't know how I would have been able to get through those lead times. Um, but initially I was given a check for $22,000 uh, lump sum that was my pension thanks for coming out and uh, if you put that into annuity like a monthly you know check I would have got about $75 a month that would have been and uh, so it took me quite some time of, of, of appealing and, and arguing and they had put me in a category for headaches and not for traumatic brain injury and it was just you know a common story uh, within the Canadian forces as to how they were treating a lot of the guys injured in Afghanistan. Um, they hadn't quite figured out the, the entire system, and it uh, kind of uh, it, it left a lot of guys in the lurch. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, when the veteran confronted the prime minister in Edmonton and said, why are you fighting us in court? That was the Aquitas case. And Mr. Trudeau said, well, because veterans want more than we can give right now. And that just, I kept, I thought of you when I heard that. I thought, I thought of you. And is, is, is there support, Bruce, for, for veterans now? Someone who may not have um, been able to, I don't want to say deal with, but to, um, to come out of the, of the, of the pain of the suffering with, uh, you know, with with the wherewithal to to fight the government, is there something? Is there, you know, is there pension? Is there money there for them? Um, there's a lot of issues right now in veterans affairs. Obviously, you've, you've heard about the soldier offered the medically assisted suicide. Yes. Um, I mean How that horrible is that? You know, and getting to the bottom of that, I I personally am on the uh, the minister's uh, advisory committee for the service excellence, and I have. Um, asked for an emergency meeting in regards to that and was denied that meeting request. So there's, you know, the, the wait times are only getting longer. Um, I, I think, it, you know, the fact that the, the headquarters is, is located in Prince Edward Island and uh, is there mainly to prop up the economy of PEI is a problem. And how many soldiers uh, have, you know, died because of the incompetencies of uh, of uh the people working in PEI is just, uh, it's a crying shame. And, and I, I said this recently that I think there's more blood in PEI than Afghanistan, Bosnia, and Korea combined. And I think it's time that that uh, head, national headquarters move back to Ottawa. I think yeah. enough is enough. We have about a minute, uh, Bruce. Where can um, Afghan campaign vets get in touch? Where should they go? What, what, what's the primary point of access? So there's a few points of access i mean um uh the, the royal canadian legion has really i feel personally has made leaps and bounds in the last few uh few years um have really really been instrumental in helping getting the word out about uh 
Valor in the presence of the enemy. They want to reach out to us, Valor. I mean, we would be more than happy to, you know, lend a lend an ear. And uh, family and friends, I think, is key to this. I mean, my own wife, uh, my partner Nikki, she's always been there for me, and uh, I, you know, I'm grateful for her and the boys, and, and just being able to to talk to family and uh, have an ally uh, that has your back no matter what. Well, we're grateful to you, and uh, sincerely grateful to you. And so it's Valor in the presence of the enemy. Is that how people get in touch with you? That's yeah, they, yeah, yeah. Well, you can find us on Facebook and things like that. And we're going to be starting a new campaign. It was supposed to launch today, but we've had some technical difficulties. Um, a new campaign, it's, it's, a, it's a new group called New Mode, and we're going to be doing a letter-writing campaign where it's already written. All you got to do is just uh, put your name and, and your email address, okay. and it will email the member for you. The response from the government, like you mentioned, was the most egregious thing about the scandal itself, because we heard nothing, silence for days, even when they knew what was happening. They knew that they gave money to an anti-Semite, and their version of racism doesn't include anti-Semitism. The uh, Leif Maruth fiasco, it's a scandal really, involving the federal government of Canada, as they hired Maruth, or provided contracts of up to $600,000 for Maruth and his wife, who were uh, disguised as an organization on a CMAC, which was really just them. And uh, their agenda was to provide anti-racism training, including to broadcasters, while Maruf himself is a, an absolute outrageous racist. And uh, I'm sure you've seen and heard reports on what he tweeted and what he's uh, put out and we talked about it yesterday, not only with uh, Melissa Lansman, but also with Professor Michael Geist from the University of Ottawa. And the professor had tweeted that his grandparents were survivors of the Holocaust, and he felt that the heritage minister should be saying something, anything, about Maruf. And then in uh, reply, um, Professor Geist was accused of being racist by the parliamentary secretary to the federal heritage minister. It's just it's bizarre. And And when Justin Trudeau talks about slipping through the cracks, that Maruf slipped through the cracks. No, he didn't. The barn door was wide open. All the ministries that provided money were wide open to him. And a certain minister, um, and we'll talk to our good friend Tom Korsky about this because um, Black Locks Reporter has been writing about it and tweeting about it. Um, Tom, I'm forgetting the name. Thanks for joining us. I'm forgetting the name of the the minister who said, "I, I, I know nothing. Uh, that would be Heritage Minister uh, Pablo Rodriguez, who says says he loves tough questions from the press, uh, Roy. He's the man responsible, by the way, for the press subsidies. And every time someone says, uh, hey, uh, aren't you just buying coverage? He says, no, no. I enjoy tough questions. Tough questions. Uh, we asked uh, uh, him for an interview, asked his office. That would be over seven days ago. No response yet. So I guess there's some questions he doesn't want to answer. And, and you just named the question, Roy, which is, who left the door open? Who left the door open? Mark Miller was the one I was thinking of as well. Uh, we, oh, in Miller's case, that's even worse. This was one of the smaller grants for this character. It was a Canada summer student grant. This is the odd part, Roy. That's the only grant program that is vetted by MPs' offices. That's a fact. It's oversubscribed. These are employers who look for 50% wage subsidies to hire a summer student. And the list goes to the Department of Employment, and the department kicks it back to MPs' offices. And Miller's office approved a Canada summer student grant to this dangerous moron. And he had, at the same time, to have turned down other applicants, small businesses, you name it. We asked him why. Never heard of them. Never heard of this guy. I've heard from other MPs, I have to tell you, who say that's difficult to believe. MPs kind of watch that grant money really carefully because you're making friends and enemies. This whole thing is a fiasco, right? It is. And Mr. Miller looked too uncomfortable for my liking. He just looked like he was bewildered. It was coming at him from all directions, and he couldn't think of what he was going to say. That was my impression. And if I'm wrong and if I'm aligning Mr. Miller, then I'll be the first to apologize. But this whole government, that they can step forward and say, we'll hold an inquiry now, an investigation. No, just, just sit down at the table, the bunch of you, 
and and talk about it, work it out, and then provide the truth to the rest of us. We, we don't need an inquiry. An inquiry will just delay the facts and give opportunity for obfuscation. Would you think, Tom? Roy, uh, B'nai B'rith has said, yeah, investigation's a good idea, but not by you guys. Maybe get an independent investigator. Yes. Roy, I am no expert in anti-Semitism or hate speech. I am an expert in contracting, uh, to be candid. We cover a lot of contracting. Here's the problem. When you say the door was left open, and how? You cannot submit a bid for a routine contract without 27 pages of security checks, employment checks, credit checks. Are you bonded? Are you insured? What are your references? That's not to supply atomic weaponry to the Department of National Defense. That's to sell chairs to the Department of Agriculture. There's only one way to bypass that. If they call you instead of the other way around, someone called this guy. And to be remembered in all of this goes back to 2015. That's gone on for years. This is he had the secret handshake. He must Every have had time the he walked handshake. in the door, he walked out with a check. That's yeah. just the fact. And then he complains that Canada is an apartheid country, and uh, it was highly unfair and uh, racist that he didn't receive his Canadian citizenship sooner than he did. He, he just yeah. doesn't... You know, he is so... Um, dismissive of any fallout, I think he just felt completely bulletproof. You know... I'm speaking metaphorically. I, 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 I take your point. How raw was it? This is a man in public who fantasized about Jews being shot in the head. I mean, that's pretty rough. And yet... After the Department of Canadian Heritage gives this man funding, last September 21 they announced it, of all people and of all functions, to give anti-racism seminars on campus nationwide, you know, and you have said so, Roy, there were MPs and knowledgeable uh, advocates who contacted the department and said, what are you doing? Don't you know, this is a man who has a 21-year history of doing things like drawing swastikas on the Israeli flag and saying that Zionists control the newspapers in Canada. That's how rough it was. And the department did nothing until those people dragged the chain. That went on all winter, Roy. So many questions about this. Yes, and um, answers are mandatory. You have a very interesting story here at Black Locks Reporter, Tom. We're going to be speaking with uh, Bruce Moncourt at the bottom of the hour, Canadian veteran from Afghanistan, who has been, he's really the one of the outstanding voices supporting his fellow veterans from Afghanistan, trying to persuade the, uh, the powers that be. The private Jess LaRochelle deserves the... Uh, Canadian Victoria Cross, and our listeners are aware of the programs we've aired with Rick Hillier and and uh, with General Omar Lavoie about uh, um, Private La Rochelle's bravery. But today is also the anniversary, 16th anniversary of Bruce Moncourt, three weeks in Afghanistan, taking friendly fire from a U.S. fighter jet, not from some American soldier on the ground with him but from a U.S. fighter jet. And um, what the shell from this jet did to Bruce Moncourt's head is terrifying to imagine. He recovered, but what the federal government did, what the Veterans of uh, the VAC did, Veterans Affairs Canada did, because they'd done away with the veterans' uh, pensions, they decided that... $22,000 check. This is after the side of his head had been blown off and parts of his brain were literally, this is going to disturb people, but it happened, leaking out of Bruce's head. He's recovered. But they decided $22,000 was all he needed. That would carry him through for the rest of his life. That's what they did. So now you have a story about auditors questioning millions spent on a Navy graveyard. Tell us about that, please. It's odd, isn't it? Uh, I'm thinking as I'm listening to you, Roy, there's, a, there's an old saying that there's nothing crueler than bureaucracy. And this is so acute when it comes to matters involving veterans affairs because everyone can see what's at stake, whether it's the case of the Victoria Cross. Someone said no 14 years ago. That's it. 
Good luck repealing that decision. These veterans' uh, disability benefits claims, this has been an ongoing scandal for years. Someone says no, and then you get to appeal, and that's where you hit the brick wall. That's where you get the cruelty of bureaucracy. But when they want to spend money, they spend it in how? $4 million on uh, an old Navy cemetery that is uh, at Esquimalt. One of only two cemeteries actually run by the Department of Veterans Affairs. The cemetery is full. It dates from the mid-19th century. All of a sudden, they spent money. The, 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 The Treasury sprang open, and millions flowed. They were expanding the cemetery. They were buying land. They were improving the trails. Auditors come in and say, why? Why would you do that? To which there was an awkward pause. The managers didn't have a plan, says the audit. They spent $4 million without a plan to expand a cemetery that no one asked for. That's the Department of Veterans Affairs. Yeah. And there are more people, more veterans like Bruce Moncour, who experienced the same kind of treatment that he experienced. And many of them are still struggling, still hurting. Uh, Private Jess LaRochelle, Victoria Cross, 16 years, you know, 16 years after being shot, terribly wounded. His back was broken. His neck was broken. He couldn't see. His eye was bad. The retina was uh, detached. He, He couldn't hear. He was terribly, terribly wounded, and he fought on for hours fighting off the Taliban. He's actually having surgery done, maybe, as we speak. This is still related to that particular situation. So what they do for veterans or to veterans is terrible. And I'll never forget Mr. Trudeau when he was confronted by the veteran in Edmonton at the town hall asking why the federal government was, in fact, fighting the veterans in court That was uh, the Equitas group, and I interviewed them many times. Mr. Trudeau said, well, veterans are asking more than we can give. And then when he was derisively hooted for that, he said, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, there's no time to wait. You said all you needed to say, and uh, veterans deserve so much more than they're getting. Okay, now, you mentioned uh, Mr. Mendicino, Minister Mendicino, who likes tough questions. <laughs> if you like That's tough questions, point. if you like tough questions, you don't say it. If you like, if you say you like tough questions, you don't. Um, what's he leaning in on? "Quote unquote," leaning in. Cabinet's old fetish about uh, regulating the internet. This is a big bill, and it has seen the light of day only briefly in 2021, and then it lapsed in the last parliament. This is the bill to regulate and include takedown orders on legal but hurtful Internet content. A a unique bill in the English-speaking world, Roy. Fraught with contention and controversy, there are free speech advocates of the gamut right across the political spectrum, former federal judges, retired CRTC commissioners, many legislators saying, are you crazy? Mendicino telling the press, uh, we are going to lean in on that because uh, cabinet feels it must regulate the internet, and I stress, legal content that hurts people's feelings. That's a pretty subjective call, but you know who wants to make that call? The federal cabinet. Well, yeah, no, no. No surprise. I haven't heard that term "lean in" for a long time. I find that I find that to be objectionable speech. It We're leaning aggressive. in on it. It is aggressive, isn't it? It is aggressive. It's like somebody said, "We need a new tagline." Oh, I know. Let's lean in on it. It is not warm. It is not. I, there's nothing. Not get- <laughs> there's nothing redeeming about leaning in. Is there? Yes. <laughs> I, I, you nailed it. I can't, is there? I can't top that, Roy. Is there? I don't think so. <laughs> All right. Now, you also had the story, and we have to talk about this, and we did yesterday on the program, that NASI, the uh, is a volunteer medical group, is, is saying that um, we may need to be vaccinated or consider being vaccinated every 90 days. And I ran that past infectious diseases specialist, Dr. Neil Rao, yesterday. And he said that's like giving everybody an electric vehicle with a 60 mile range or 60 kilometer range. So that's the doctor's response. So what's the story here? Uh, it's confusing, isn't it? Because only nine months ago, uh, no, not, not nine months, only last June 30th, 
So that's uh, that's only a couple of months ago. The Minister of Health, uh, Jean-Yves Duclos, said every nine months you're going to have to get a, a COVID shot. No, Forget about thinking of yourself as fully vaccinated. You have to ask yourself, are my vaccines up to date? You're going to have to get a COVID shot every nine months. And then suddenly it was every six months. And then, as you mentioned, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization came back and said, you know, maybe I'm just throwing out ideas, maybe every 90 days. To which uh, no one says that's a great idea. But it does leave the impression, as the chief uh, medical advisor to the Department of Health said, yeah, the messaging is changing, she said. But the, the message really actually is not changing at all. The message seems to be that no one's in charge and they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Well, I love that analogy of uh, Dr. Rao. It's like giving everybody a, an electric vehicle with a 60-kilometer range. It puts it into terminology that we can understand. Now, what's the story with debt collectors following you to and beyond, as it were? It's interesting. This was out of the B.C. Supreme Court. You know, everyone knows about debt collectors. Who really knows how they work unless you've actually been in touch with them? (laughs) Oh, oh, no, they'll call you. It's not the other way. They work at commissions typically up to 50% commission. This was a case involving a tire dealership had an unfortunate disagreement with its debt collection agency and, and found out they play pretty rough. How rough? Well, the president of a debt collection agency testified in B.C. Supreme Court how his business works, 33 to 50% commission. You just leave it up to us. Oh, by the way, we never close a file, never, unless we get some money. And if a debtor dies, then we go after the estate. But if you want to know the definition of perpetuity, it would be a file at a debt collection agency, so the court was told. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.